Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History of England, episode 84, War, Tournaments and Victory. So, the army that Edward assembled in the summer of 1301 was not the biggest of Edward's career. Nonetheless, an army of about 10,000, if it could stay together, should be certainly big enough for the job. And no doubt, with your young prince in tow, the English army would have looked a fine sight. Poets often remarked on the splendid displays of the medieval army. The knightly pennants fluttering at the end of lances, brightly coloured surcoats, horse coverings. So with that in mind, Yamu some time ago dropped me an email. And as a result, I said I'd bring us up to date on the military scene. I've also had an exchange with Dave, who's interested in military technology changes. So this week, we're going to have a bit of politics and we'll have a bit about the military changes in the armies of the 13th century. Let's start with the military stuff then, with something of a broad brush view of what we already know, and where we'd got to by the end of the 12th century. So what we had under Henry II was the continuation of the feudal army established by William the Conqueror, but very heavily augmented by large contingents of brutal mercenaries. The feudal backbone of the army was the heavily armoured and mounted knights, with horsemen often organised into groups called conroys. Armour is still very much male armour, with conical helmets. To start with strategy, firstly, isn't it a bit odd that we don't talk very much about great medieval commanders? I mean, not just in England, but all over Europe. There are exceptions, of course, but they tend to be the names of the kings that we remember, so Richard I, Saladin, so on. But you don't have the Belisariuses, Marlboroughs, Eugenes of Savoy, that sort of thing. There are probably two reasons for this. Firstly, there's no tradition at all of rising through the ranks to become a great general. To be a great commander, you need to be a great lord. That was that. Secondly, it's simply what chroniclers record and value. So even where monarchs are praised for their victories, it tends to be their personal bravery or chivalry that gets praised. There's no analysis of the capability that makes them a great military commander. Nonetheless, despite this, the assumption often made that Western medieval warfare was a rather bumbling affair with stupid metal men wandering around bumping into each other is deeply unfair. There was a clear understanding of the importance of strategy. So, see the Welsh wards of Edward, for example, or Edward's Evesham campaign against Montford. What hasn't changed, though, is the basic tenet we've discussed before, which is that battle is a risky affair, and best avoided if possible. Nope, war is about sieges, and it's also about devastating your opponent's land, bringing fire and sword. The command structure of medieval English armies remains relatively flat. Despite various complications, such as cavalry fighting on foot and foot using horses to get to battle, the basic fault line is between cavalry, staffed by the social elite, and infantry, their social inferiors. So let's start with the elite. In the 12th century, this lot was simply referred to as knights. 
by 1300, we've got a little bit more differentiation. At the top of the tree, we have the marshal, a man in charge of the cavalry. And then we have bannerets. Now you can tell who these guys are because they've got rectangular flags on their lances, rather than the normal triangular pennant of the knight. You could also pick them out because they are probably looking slightly smug, since they were paid twice what knights got. And also, they're probably telling you to do something, because their role was to organise cavalry units. It's all a tad confusing because, as with so many things in medieval history, there are no hard and fast rules, because banneret was also an indicator of social status, but it is not, repeat not, hereditary. So you did have to prove your military worth, though as the 14th century wears on, it becomes more about social stuff. Whatever happens, it's clear that these are men of significance. And it looks as though a banneret would have had about 13 knights in his group. So, then below the banneret, we get knights. We all understand these guys, I think, though I'd remind you of the episodes about social and economic stuff. Becoming a knight meant you had to do an increasing amount of things, so people tended to avoid it. So what you get is a group of other men, of men who aspired to knighthood or, or who could have afforded to be knights, but just don't take it up. And they get given various names, so it might be squire or sergeant or even valet. From the middle of the 13th century, the proportion of squires to knights increases massively, so that by 1300 there may be ten times the number of squires to knights. But while inferior in social status, the squire or sergeant is still fighting on the front line, and often with the same kit. One of the rather upsetting things about medieval armies, though, is the lack of a very visible command and control organisation. Now we get used to armies being impressively organised, clearly designed by people with a slightly obsessive disposition. There are hints of an organisation, so the term Conroy, for example, does come up as late as 1217, when Louis uses it with his troops. But there's some indication that the English cavalry by this time had formed themselves into units of ten, called Constabularia. All of these men are very much organised around the great men and their retinues, rather than round a nice, structured and sensible military unit. So when the army divided up into the traditional three or four battles, the king would have to work out the sizes of the various retinues and put them together in the best combination. But within the retinues, when the fighting began, each of the men on the front line would have people supporting him. But once again, there's either distressingly little information about how this worked in practice, or it's simply distressingly under-organised for the modern mind. There was the Templar rule, which had a knight with two squires, one carrying his lance and one behind leading a spare horse. There's a portrait of a knight in Exeter Cathedral being followed by a squire and a page, for example. Much later, the famous English mercenary leader John Hawkwood used a three-man group of two front-line men, supported by a single page. At the Battle of Cressy, a knight called James Audley fought with four squires. It's all distressingly inconsistent, and I know you are at this moment in time staring at the iPod, computer or whatever, demanding to know what the actual answer is. Look, sorry, this is the Middle Ages, it varies. But whatever, this group would often be known collectively as a lance. What the English did not do is to develop this unit in the way that the French did into a formally prescribed unit. So bully for the French.
This may be the place to mention a type of cavalry that doesn't fit neatly into the feudal structure, the hobbler. Now, your hobbler is a lightly armed cavalryman who probably originated in Ireland. They first come into service formally in 1296 and are highly mobile and relatively cheap to run. In the wars in Scotland, they are absolutely essential. In densely populated Gascony, very much less so. And then let's come to equipment. Not a vast amount has changed, but changes have happened. So the conical helmet of the Normans have gone to be replaced by flat-top helmets, now covering much of the face, or even enclosing the face fully. Quite often, you get helmets designed specifically for the tournament rather than the battlefield, and all of these helmets were big and uncomfortable, which no one in their right minds would put on until they absolutely had to. Since they were hideously cumbersome, a lighter, more rounded version begins to appear, called the bassinet. The coat of mail is still the main armour protection, but has extended everywhere, all over the body, like a rash. So now you often get male leggings, and the arms of the male coat often end in rather cute-looking male mittens. But the appearance of plate is now beginning, because mail was vulnerable to crushing blows, or indeed to arrows and crossbow bolts. So the male coat begins to be supplemented by bits of plate, greaves on the legs, for example, or the odd breastplate. But the English, it has to be said, are a bit later than the oh-so-fashionable French with their fancy ways, and it's not until the Hundred Years' War that we see the English really adopt them, now less than half a century away. Sword and lance are still your basic thing for the knights and so on, though you might also use a mace if you felt like it. And when we say sword, we should bear in mind that there are now many types of sword. So if you're a big buddly chap, probably not given to subtle conversation about the development of perspective and representational art, you might go for a whopping two-hander to be used when dismounted. Or you might even use a curved, machete-like thing called the falchion. Though if you did in England, you'd probably be considered dangerously trendy. Whatever, swords were traditionally flat and designed for cutting blows with the blade, but by the 13th century, many have been developed with a central rib, which made them better for thrusting. There's the influence here of plate armour, which was basically pretty invulnerable to a cutting blow, but potentially vulnerable to a thrust, finding a gap or a join. And so finally we come to the horse, essential equipment for the knight of course. No self-respecting knight would have just one. There's your performance horse, the destrier, a specialised war horse. The destrier was highly trained, and usually by now highly armoured or barded, as it was called. This could simply be a cloth padded cover, or it could be full male armour, or even plate. The knight would sit in a big saddle with a high back and use a long stirrup, and the pictures of them look really uncomfortable, with legs sticking forward, fully extended. But the point is that these guys were wearing a lot of armour, so by and large, they didn't rise in their stirrups. The breed of destrier seems to be undiscoverable, with the current thinking doubting that the modern shire horse or cart horse are related. A knight would also have several other horses with him, as I say, which could be the lighter, faster courser, or the more generally used rouncy or palfrey. OK, so that's the military elite. What about the infantry? What's clear about the infantry is that they were way less well prepared for battle than the knight, which is of course what you'd expect, given that it's the knight's job. But the impression you also get is of a very motley crew indeed, with all kinds of levels of weapons and armour. 
During the period of the Edwards, we see a temporary drop-off in the use of foreign mercenaries and a surge in foot soldiers recruited locally, though paid, of course. And the village or locality was expected to provide their kit, which can't have helped produce a professionally equipped army. So we're talking leather armour at best, with spears and axes and bows. There tend to be specific areas where most recruitment happens. The Welsh in particular are enthusiastic recruits for English armies, and Cheshire also. We're not talking about a yeoman army here by and large. There's a strong tradition of scouring the country's prisons to find recruits. And maybe this has an impact on the quite remarkable levels of desertion. In Edward I's wars against Scotland, for example, there are masses of examples of setting out with tens of thousands of foot soldiers and returning home with one dog and a spearman called Phil, and he had a serious skin complaint so no one else would have him. I exaggerate for effect, of course, but outside of the Welsh, who are rather better, desertion rates are very high. While we're on desertion, let me also just make a general point about the obligation to fight. If you were looking for fame and fortune, then maybe you'd be keen, but outside of that, there seemed to be a general agreement that fighting was just a pain in the proverbial. Even magnets whine like anything to get let off fighting abroad, and as soon as 40 days was up, feudal levies would up sticks and be off if they could. They'd do the bare minimum, if at all possible. There are a couple of records I came across that bear this out, so let me introduce you to Hugo Fitzhair. Hugo's military service obliged him to attend with a bow and arrow. So Hugo did exactly that. He appeared at Stirling, shot his arrow, then turned and left. Or there was the unnamed man who was obliged to provide one side of bacon. So he turned up at the muster with said bacon, ate it and then left. Both guys would no doubt claim they were fulfilling the letter of their public service. Neither of them could make a claim for the spirit. Once in the army, the structure for infantry command is a bit clearer than for cavalry. Men were formed into units of 20 and each 20 had its officer or vintner and every hundred had their mounted constable. None of this suggested any continuity beyond a single campaigning season. There's no indication of the formation of regiments or anything like that, and won't be for a while. There is, though, a suspicion of the beginnings of the uniform, in a very small way indeed. Heraldry was, of course, to an extent, a development made to deal with the fact that knights' faces were now covered over. In the Welsh Wars, the infantry also wore armbands with the Cross of St George on them. All men in Norfolk in 1295 were given white jerkins. It's a small start, but it's a start. Which brings us to the longbow, which seems to be a remarkably difficult topic. As you probably know, we're fast approaching a period where for a hundred years, according to the legend anyway, the English achieved the most extraordinary victories because of the longbow. And by the looks of things, really nobody knows why. Now when I was a lad, all of this was very straightforward, the story was that the English started using the longbow, they hadn't used it before, so we blew everyone away. And who was Joan of Arc? Never heard of her. But in fact, there is no obvious change in technology, though there's a faint suggestion that maybe, possibly, perhaps, the longbow gets a bit longer. There's a theory that the Welsh wars introduced the longbow to English armies. There's a suggestion that it's the way the English used the longbow in a tactical sense that makes the difference. There are problems and a lack of evidence for all of these theories and indeed question marks about how important the bow really was at battles such as Poitiers and Cressy. 
Well, I guess we'll talk about the tactical stuff when we get to those battles, but it's worth noting that there are some theories that it's during Edward's reign that the longbow becomes the backbone of the English army. Up till that point, the bow's certainly been used, the Battle of the Standard, for example, in 1138, but in fact it's the crossbow that's been the weapon really feared, particularly since its extra range made it very suitable for siege warfare, where its slow rate of fire didn't cause a problem. And it's a much easier weapon to use than the longbow, which needed a life of training and practice. So, during Edward's time, there are in fact really very few crossbowmen in his armies, and the great majority of infantry are bowmen. Incidentally, there's also a soupçon of evidence that bowmaking becomes more professional around about now, so the best technological argument is that maybe the bows were better made, and maybe they were slightly longer. Outside of bowmen, the infantry was shockingly poorly armed and shockingly poorly trained. The biggest single innovation of Edward's reign was in the new and generally very successful recruitment of armies. It was definitely not a time of innovation in training. But his armies were, by the standards of the time, enormous. And to achieve the numbers, a new system was needed. And this was called the Commission of Array, where sheriffs and specially appointed commissioners were given the task of recruiting, usually working through officials and bailiffs at local level. As you might imagine, the process was rife with corruption and backhanders, and as above, what we end up with was quantity, not quality. Added to this was the more traditional method of the magnates providing the troops, and here again there's a change, as magnates begin to recruit archers as well as knights and men-at-arms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So maybe a couple more things before we get to politics, trebuchets and tournaments. I think we've talked before about the kind of siege equipment available to early medieval kings. By the time of Henry II a siege train was one of the most essential parts of the royal army, and engineers and technical people like carpenters were integral to military success, just as was the ability to mobilise resources and get them to the right place. The biggest step forward came with the introduction of the trebuchet powered by a counterweight rather than by torsion. It was significant for two reasons. Firstly, the counterweight meant that stones could be thrown much further. Secondly, the distance the stones were thrown was much more reliable. So, one thing to think about is that let's say you've got ten men pulling a rope to pull back the arm of a catapult. If they'd been out in the town the night before, were feeling a bit knackered, they'd likely pull just a little bit lustily than if they were full of the joys of spring, and so the stone would drop in the moat. But a counterweight of X pounds will always throw a stone of Y weight the same distance. It's again Edward that maxes out with the trebuchet with the famous war wolf. This was a trebuchet so enormous that it took 30 wagons to carry it when disassembled and Edward wouldn't actually let Stirling Castle surrender much as they tried until he'd tried the thing out. The last topic then is the tournament. 
Now, we're not quite at the period of the high Middle Ages, which is where tournaments follow the pattern we tend to visualise, with jousting knights and elegant manners. But we are very, very nearly there, and Edward again plays a major part in the tournament's development. By the 13th century, the tournament is very much part of the knightly life. We've seen it in the life of William the Marshal and in the youth of Edward I. The tournament continued to have a connection with the concept of training for war, though. So, the melee was still right at the centre of events, but there's no doubt that by the middle of the 13th century, the tournament circuit was a core part of the aristocratic life, all tied up with chivalry and good society. Now, this causes monarchs something of a problem, First of all, it's no good trying to use tournaments to train your military elite if they're too busy messing about with their mates, having a good time, or trying to chat up the women. A 13th century French poet reflected this in a grumpy old man kind of way when he wrote, It is fitting that people nowadays do not maintain in any way the proper principles of chivalry or arms as they were once supposed to be. They do the very opposite of them. Tournaments are like social gatherings. People do not attend from any desire to excel in achievement or in honour. However, we shouldn't overplay this. After all, there'll always be at least one grumpy old man moaning at every event from here to doomsday that it was better in the past. In fact, there's little doubt that tournaments not only helped with individual skills, but also with groups working together. So we've mentioned that in the feudal armies, the command structure followed the feudal structure, i.e. each magnate commanded his own retinue. And so it was at tournaments. In the melee, the retinues would stick together and build their esprit de corps and group effectiveness. On the other hand, it's also a pretty brutal way of training people. There are deaths all over the place, and often of famous and important people, such as Gilbert de Clare, for example, who died after being dragged along the ground by a runaway horse. Worse, these tournaments became too obviously a flashpoint for political rivalries, such as the English and French under Henry III. There was a major ding-dong going on there. William de Valence was beaten up by the English at a tournament in 1248, got his revenge later in the year, but then in 1251 the English squires beat him up again, this time using clubs and sticks. So much for the delicacies of chivalry then. And we'll hear more soon about the infamous Wallingford Tournament of 1307, where showboating by a chap called Piers Gaveston really begins to wind up the older magnates in a process that will lead to a sword through Piers' guts on a lonely hill in the Midlands. Tournaments could also be an occasion for plotting rebellion. In Edward II's reign in particular, magnates sneakily organised tournaments so as to get their faction together. And finally, these tournaments were a significant distraction from the hard business of repressing a nation. Edward was livid when, sat on the Scottish border in 1305-6, a bunch of 21 knights naffed off to the continent for the tournament scene. So by and large, monarchs didn't like them. Henry II and Richard I banned or controlled them, Philip III of France did likewise. And despite his enthusiasm during his youth, once he was king, Edward didn't much like them either. He banned them for some periods and then tried to regulate them with his statute of arms in 1292. By this statute, he limited the number of men who could attend and made sure nobody brought anything more pointy than a muffin. It was anyway now the tradition that tournament arms should be blunted, so a lance, for example, 
had a blunt ending called a coronel, and all other weapons were supposed to be blunted. Edward also set up a tournament's control committee run by the great and the good, though we have to accept that the history of England so far has proved that the great and the good rarely go together. Despite the disapproval of kings, the tournament became more and more popular and changed and adapted. There began to be a distinction between tournaments à l'outrance, or extreme tournaments, and tournaments à plaisance. At the former, things could get serious, though the restrictions about blunt weapons remained. At the latter, the tournament was just very much part of the more important social scene. Many of these were themed around Arthur and the Round Table, such as the big tournament he held at Nefin after the conquest of Wales. Knights dressed up in their favourite characters from the Arthur stories. In one example, the boorish Sakay appeared, wandered around being the butt of medieval jokes, and having his saddle cut from under him so that he toppled off his horse. Another was the loathly damsel, who was provided with fangs and a massive nose. However, Edward was not given to missing any opportunities for political point scoring, and so the loathly damsel demanded help from all the knights present to fight the king's wars. Here clearly is a problem of mixing business with pleasure. Another development that had reached us by the 13th century was the presence of women at tournaments. The first mention of women comes in 1180, when William the Marshal hears that a countess and her ladies have appeared at the lists. So along he trots and keeps them entertained with a song. History doesn't record whether this was a good song, or well sung, or one that sent the countess screaming, but you have to admire the lad's chutzpah. After this, the sophisticated French always assumed women would be part of the spectators, or at least for the tournaments à plaisance, though clearly not for the tournaments à l'outrance. But England was again rather slower. Women may have been part of it all, but we only have evidence from 1279 when Roger Mortimer held a round-table event at Kenilworth. Since Edward I actually constructed a viewing platform for women at the Siege of Stirling, you can assume that women were part of his tournaments à plaisance. But really, it only becomes standard with Edward III's reign in England. All of which means I've got very little space indeed left for politics this week. Mea culpa. But let's see where we can get. So, I left us last time with Edward finally accepting defeat in 1301 and allowing the changes to the forest boundaries and confirmation of the charters to go ahead, pushed by baronial pressure and his need for support for yet another Scottish war. Now, in Edward's mind, the War of 1301 was to be the decisive campaign. This time, there would be two armies. Edward would lead the attack from the traditional starting spot on the east coast at Berwick, and for the first time, his 17-year-old son, Edward of Carnarvon, would lead the second army from the Carlisle in West, and together they'd meet at Stirling. By the way, let's call Edward of Carnarvon the son, Prince Edward from here on in, to distinguish him from King Edward. Hope that works. Edward's army was much smaller than previously. He had now about 1,000 horse and 7,500 foot, while Prince Edward had his men from Wales, and also from Ireland, including the hobbelars we mentioned earlier. Prince Edward actually got off to something of a flyer. He took Robert Bruce's castles at Ayr and Turnbury, and then set off for Glasgow. Meanwhile, by the end of August, the king himself was already at Glasgow, and the pincer was closing in. But once again, things ended in disappointment. 
there were massive desertion rates in Edward's army, which meant that it was down to a third of its original size. Supplies and pay were a constant problem, so much so that rather than being a hammer of the Scots, Edward became the hammer of his own officials. It's one of Edward's unattractive traits, the noblesse oblige thing. He knew darned well that the taxes agreed at Parliament wouldn't be raised until autumn, and yet he went and gave the exchequer a beating about where all the taxation money is. Not very fair. So really, all Edward achieved was the capture of a castle at Bothwell. And meanwhile, Prince Edward's campaign also ground to a halt, because the Scots came out of Selkirk Forest behind him and started to besiege Lochmarben Castle, which made Edward turn back. And although he did raise that siege, he rather then messed around visiting religious sites, and his Irish contingent had had to go home. So soon Prince Edward was back in Carlisle, leaving the the castles he'd taken at Turnbury under siege from the Scots, and he was forced to admit in a letter that the English garrisons were rather poorly provisioned. It had all been something of a damp squib. And at the same time, the relationship with France was deeply irritating. Philip IV still hadn't actually confirmed that darn treaty, and now he was insisting that the Scots should be included in any final agreement, which was anathema to Edward, of course, since in his view we're not talking about a separate nation, they're just a bunch of rebels. Edward had had to release John Balliol after pressure from France, so Balliol was now in France as well. But actually, this disappointing position at the end of 1301 was a valley just before the Mountain of Triumph. There were two big events that changed things. Firstly, Balliol's appearance as a free agent in France messed with the politics north of the border in a rather unexpected way. Wallace had already left the scene in favour of Scotland's new guardians, Robert Bruce and John Cummin. But the potential re-emergence of Balliol swung prominence heavily in favour of his greatest supporter, i.e. John Cummin. Robert Bruce was therefore feeling a bit upset and fragile, the poor poppet. With the removal of Balliol, he'd looked to be next in line to be King of Scotland, and now he was expected to fight for old Tomb Tabard, not just in his own name as previously. And also the jolly old Cummins were lording it over him, and we all know they didn't get on. There'd already been a famous incident where Bruce had grabbed John Cummin by the throat in fury. And then to cap it all, the English were living it up in his castles at Eyre and Turnbury. So, sometime in the winter of 1301-2, Bruce turned himself in and he declared for the English. Robert Bruce III therefore joined the family tradition of putting his personal ambition first. For the second big thing, we need to go back over to the continent and talk about something called the Battle of the Golden Spurs. In 1302, Philip the Fair, King of France, decided that Edward's allies north of France needed to be finally put in their place. He was faced by a people's uprising in Flanders. So, at Courtrai in July, the glorious French army of both mounted knights and infantry faced a bunch of poxy townsmen armed mainly with spears and nothing else more dangerous than a baguette. Courtrai is one of a stream of victories where seemingly superior feudal armies lose their shirts to an army of infantry, where the ideas of honour and chivalry caused the French to mess up. The field at Courtrai was a large open field, cut by ditches that made a cavalry charge difficult. At the start of the battle, the French infantry were actually doing a pretty good job, so the aristocratic French commander was worried 
but the credit wouldn't go where it was due, so the Count of Artois recalled his infantry, so that the knights and the cavalry could get the honour of victory. The resulting carnage was all on the French side. The Flemish ignored the rules about taking and ransoming noblemen and killed them instead, collecting vast numbers of golden spurs from the dead to give the battle its name. This included, incidentally, the Count of Artois, who begged for his life, but the Flemish claimed not to speak French, and so they killed him anyway. This battle is still remembered by the Flemish community, and is held as an official holiday. The war in Scotland in 1303, therefore, started with high hopes, and for once they weren't disappointed. Edward struck for Stirling in the north of Scotland, while the Scots appeared in the south, launching a simultaneous invasion of northern England. Edward left his new pal Robert the Bruce, and Ima de Valence to deal with the Scottish invasion, bypassed Stirling and just kept straight on going to Brechin and Aberdeen, resupplied by the English fleet. But despite ravaging Commins' land in the northeast, by November 1303 Commins still fought on, and the pattern of future years was established. By and large, the Scots would avoid pitched battles and try to fight a guerrilla war and try to retake English-held castles when the main army moved away. Edward, though, refused to accept defeat, so he stayed in Scotland over winter, at Dunfermline, the ancient burial site of Scotland's kings. Then, to add to this, was the news that the French were desperate to treat, shocked by the defeat at Courtrai, and they therefore now cut the Scots out of the treaty negotiations and reneged on their alliance. The Scottish negotiators in France wrote back to their compatriots with fine words, For God's sake, do not despair. If you have ever done brave deeds, do braver ones now. But in fact, despair is exactly what they did. In the new year, 1304, John Cummin and his allies submitted and were given very generous terms by Edward because in the back of his mind, Edward knew this was a very close-run thing with his garrisons exposed and supply incredibly difficult. There was now some mopping up to do, notably Stirling Castle. By July 1304, the Scottish garrison were very ready to surrender and told Edward so, but he wasn't having any of this because he hadn't tried out his new toy, the massive trebuchet Warwolf. As we said earlier, once it had been tried out, the submission of the garrison was finally accepted and in line with the rules of war, they were allowed to leave safely. Edward then threw a nice tournament to mark the ending of the conflict in Scotland and at last the story of Scottish resistance was at an end. Or was it? Well, to find out, check in in two weeks' time since I have a week off next weekend and we'll find out what happens next, particularly find out what's happened to William Wallace. And meanwhile, thanks very much to everyone who's commented in iTunes or sent me an email or put a comment on the website or joined the new Facebook group it's really appreciated as always. So good luck everyone and have a great couple of weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.